Welcome to the podcast from Church of the Nazarene. Please subscribe to this podcast for the latest updates and new episodes. And you can also search for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. We also invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 on our YouTube channel or Facebook Live. You can also join us in person at 9 or 1030 for our English services or 1145 for our Spanish service. We also invite you to join Celebrate Recovery every Monday night at 630. Thanks for listening. Even in heaven, Jesus bore the marks of his earthly pilgrimage with its cruel cross and shameful death. The angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly while down there. I did, he said. And continued Gabriel, do they know all about how you love them and what you did for them? Oh no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed. Then what have you done, he asked, to let everyone know about your love for them? Jesus said, I've asked Peter, James, and John, and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn tell others about me, and my story will spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all people will have heard about my life and what I have done. Gabriel frowned and looked rather skeptical. Yes, but what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? What if way down the line in the 21st century, people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus answered, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. That's an excerpt from Lifestyle Evangelism written by Joe Aldridge. What a sobering thought, right? And so I need your participation in this next part. If you believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world, raise your hand. If you believe that your neighbor actually matters to Jesus, raise your hand. If you believe evangelism is important, raise your hand. If you believe that the church needs to live and love differently than any other community of people in the world, raise your hand. Thanks for your participation this morning. Hey, if you're joining us for the first time, I'm Billy, and I have the privilege of serving here as the pastor of discipleship and kicking off a new series today. Our lead pastor, Adrian Mills, uh, for you visiting and for church family, he'll be back next week uh, bringing the word, returning from his sabbatical. So he better be rested and and fired up, right? And so he'll be back next week. And and we're excited to begin this new series uh, that will cover the next four weeks. And I understand, listen, I understand that when we talk about evangelism or even uh, having a conversation, I understand for some of you that carrying a conversation or trying to befriend someone new is actually painful to think about. Like for some of you, that's nauseating, right? You would rather ride a roller coaster or something. Uh, that's nauseating. And listen, I, I understand because I'm introverted too. And so, so I can empathize with you. My wife is way more gifted in this area than I am, and we both We both know it. And so what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this series? It's to inform, it's to inspire, to equip, and challenge us as the people of God to embrace our unique calling, to be a counter-narrative people, to do his will and serve others, and to speak the truth in love to those who are lost, those who are far from God, as we tell of what he's done in our lives and for the whole world. You can see the title here. We're talking about 21st century evangelism, and the title of the series is titled Your Unchurched Neighbor. Your un.
church neighbor. And so that's the purpose of this series as we're going to dive deep in the next four weeks. And Jesus, in Luke 19 and verse 10, he's just encountered, he's had this interaction, engaged with this tax collector named Zacchaeus. Maybe you know of the wee little man. And after he has this encounter with Zacchaeus, he says these words. He says, for the son of man, that's Jesus talking about himself, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He declares his mission. After he's engaged with this tax collector, this one uh, looked down upon by the Jewish society, he, he, he says the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Who are the lost? It's those who have sinned and are living in broken relationship with God, their creator. And so listen, uh, if we're committed to being transformed by God to bring hope to others through Christ, that's our mission here at Church of the Nazarene, we must be committed to making changes in ourselves and in our approach to mission as the church to reach a new and different world in which we're living. The message is always the same. The message doesn't change. But the world is different, and the people all around us are certainly different. And so the focus for today is understanding, understanding And we're going to look at three areas of understanding. The first is this, uh, we're going to look at in just a second, is understanding the general worldview, the understanding the mindset, the cultural uh, statistics of the world in which we live, the cultural vibes, right? What are the vibes of the culture? What's the worldview? What's the mindset? The second area of understanding that we'll move into is, is looking at the reality of your own life, your own heart, your being versus your doing, what you declare and what you live. And we're going to look at that and why that matters in our heart posture as we think about personal evangelism and and reaching those who are far from God. And then finally, we're going to look at an understanding of the power of knowing and, yes, understanding in our lives and in the lives of others. We're going to talk about holy love, holy love. And so I want to give you a few of the titles of the articles that I gleaned. And there were some books that I didn't put on here, but some of the articles that I gleaned, some of this general uh, understanding, this worldview, this mindset, these statistics that I'm about to read to you. Because the world in which we live, like we could declare, is not the world in which I grew up in. Um, It's not the world that most of you grew up in. Uh, The whole mindset, the whole worldview has shifted. And so we want to look at what's going on around us, because if we don't understand what's going on, then we're not going to have the right posture, the right position, the right information to enter into conversation, to enter into relationship with an unchurched neighbor. And so here's the articles that I gleaned this general understanding from. Here's some of the titles. Nuns are on the rise. And I don't mean nuns like nuns, you know, nuns, like nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Those who would identify as having no religious affiliation. Uh, The second one was what non-Christian people really think about the church. The third one, what do non-Christians really think of us? Uh, What non-Christians want from faith conversations. Uh, Nine common social media tactics that never draw anyone closer to Jesus. Uh, You should read that one. Uh, Three things Christians do that non-Christians despise. And then three truths about your non-religious neighbor. And so these are just some of the titles that I gleaned some of this from. And and I have a quote here by David Kinneman. And he's going to set the stage for us today and for the rest of our time in this series, and David Kinneman is part of the Barna Group, he says, in an era of mass media, it's easy to believe that the more eyeballs, the more impact. So in an era of mass media, media has exploded in our lifetime in the recent decade, whether it's social media, the 24-7 news cycle, whatever it is, it's at your fingertips. In an era of mass media, it's easy to believe that the more eyeballs, the more impact but radio, television, and tracks. 
Some of you know what a track is. Radio, television, and tracks accounted for a combined total of less than one-half of 1% 1 of the busters, the Gen Xers, who are born again. Let that sink in for a minute. Radio, television, and tracks. Listen, we're talking about the age of Billy Graham. Radio, television, and tracks accounted for a combined total of less than one-half of 1% 1 of busters or Gen Xers who are born again. And so this highlights the vital importance of relationships in our life, of relationships in our spheres of influence. And so here's the statistics. Here's some of the worldview that we're working with. Only 21%, and this is from recent surveys, studies over the last few years, only 21% of non-Christian people have a positive perception of the local church. Less than a quarter. Half of non-Christian Americans don't trust local pastors. Millennials, that's my generation, think that the local church is detached from the real issues people are facing. The percentage of people who attend church one or two times per month, just one or two times, decreased from 34% in 2019 to 28% in 2022. In the same time frame, the percentage of people that never or seldom attend church grew from 50% to 57%. There's an increasing percentage of people who are spiritually and biblically illiterate, especially in younger generations, but they are open to spiritual things. Non-Christians are pretty sure that we're not interested in who they are. We're not interested in them for who they are. Essentially, that we stink at friendship, especially authentic friendships with those who are uh, non-believers, non-Christians. Uh, Non-Christians tend to think that Christians are against more than they're for, that we carry the perception of being judgmental, that we easily judge others by their worst sins and ourselves by our best intentions. Non-Christians don't see much difference between the way Christians live when compared with non-Christians. And another word for that is they see us as just being hypocritical. And if you're honest, it's easier to point out a hypocrite than to admit that you are one. And so, so all of this gives us this, this understanding of the worldview in which we're engaging, okay? So years ago, those statistics would have been different. A decade ago, two decades, three, four, five, six decades ago, there would have been a, a different worldview when it comes to, to what it means to, to affiliate with the church, or there would have been some sort of memory of the cross or the gospel or the name of Jesus, but we're working in a different world, and we must understand that as we begin this journey and as we engage those who are our unchurched neighbors. And if you're here today, and this is your first time in church, we are so glad that you're at church. There is too often, though, a discrepancy in who we as Christians claim to be and what we do. And that's what creates some of these perception issues. The problem with that reality is that being and doing is ultimately inseparable from one another. And if this is true, and it is far too often, then it leads unchurched neighbors to see Christians, those who carry the name of Christ, as hypocritical and judgmental and stinky friends, self-centered. And if you're saying to yourself this morning, well, who cares because that's the way the whole world is, then my answer to you from the get-go is that is not the call of those walking in the way of Jesus, the self-denying way of the cross that we talked about two weeks ago. We're called to be a counter-narrative people in the world in which we live. Kerry Newoff, pastor, blogger, author, podcaster, he says this, and I'm going to read it in its entirety. He says, while it's certainly not the whole story, and while Christians have a positive view of the church, 
The truth is that the church has been harsh and judgmental, exclusionary, and too often abusive. These aren't qualities people should expect from Christians, but too often that's exactly what Christians have shown them. So what do you do? The right response isn't better PR. It's life change. The right response isn't getting mad at non-Christians who don't see the better side of the church or the potential of the church. Instead, repentance, humility, reconciliation, and a new reality moving forward are good places to start. When overcoming perception gaps as large as this data reveals, one of the most important things church leaders and individual Christians can do is to be the opposite of what non-Christian people would expect you to be. Fortunately for Christians, the opposite of what most people expect is pretty much what Jesus embodied. The cure for the problem is to embrace more of what we are supposed to authentically be. And I have a rephrase here of something that Francis Chan said, and it went something like this. Be careful uh, not to get so caught up in everything that God wants you to do or that you want to do for God that you lose sight of who God wants you to be because the difference is significant. And so we must, we must, as we understand our own reality, the posture of our own hearts, we must, and I emphasize, embody the kingdom before our unchurched neighbor will ever give ear to hearing about the proclamation of it. It must be embodied in our lives. Jesus embodied the reign that he announced. Jesus lived in his being what he believed, not just in words, but in his very personality, the kingdom of heaven was being ushered in. So what about you and I? What about our lives today? And listen, I, I want to note this. If you're making mental notes of how so-and-so uh, that you know uh, is so bad at this and you hope that they're hearing this message this morning, then stop right now and, and, and repent. Surrender whatever pride, whatever self-righteousness is present in your heart before we get going, before we dive in the next few weeks. Uh, repent, surrender that to God right now because that makes you acting like a, a judgmental, hypocritical, stinky friend. And if defensiveness, when you hear a statement like that or those statistics, if defensiveness is the gut reaction, then it's almost a guarantee that it's true or at least true enough for pride to puff itself up inside of you. And listen, I speak from experience. I'm speaking from experience as someone who has been quick to get defensive, very quick to get defensive or to come to judgmental assumptions way too quickly of others. And so I confess that to you this morning. But I'm thankful that I have a, a friend with me at all times to correct me. My wife. I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit. You can laugh. Listen, listen. So I, I want us to see our own hearts because it's going to affect the way that we view personal evangelism. That's why before we get into this understanding of how to engage our neighbor, we got to look inside of our own hearts and look at the posture of our hearts and how we see them and how we actually see ourselves because sometimes we're so busy, if we're honest, listen, we're so busy, we're glued to our phones or our TV, or we're worried about the little things in our own little world. Guilty. Guilty of that. Or we're just cursing the darkness in the world around us that we never even consider our neighbor, really. Unless it's, unless it's a wave from behind the car window as we pour into our garage and shut the door behind us. And if that's the case, then I would say that it's been some time since you actually, actually considered the life or soul of your neighbor. And what do the statistics tell us? What do many of these unchurched people in our culture, our unchurched neighbors declare that they know it? The statistics, that their own statements declare that they know it. 
They know that we lack actual care and compassion and understanding far too often in our relationships with them. This is a quote uh, from a response to one of the online articles that I talked about when it was talking about non-believers in church. It said, this is the person, this is the person, this is what they wrote. It says, there's a reason churches are known as jerk factories. How about you Christians start leading such kind, gracious, successful, exemplary lives that people around you start asking, what's so different about you? Then you can have a conversation, which I desperately hope will not involve you confronting that person about what you haughtily, condescendingly, pompously, judgily presume to be their sin while ignoring that plank in your own eye, your own zeal to tell others what's wrong with them because they aren't more like you. That's what she wrote. So listen, as we begin this journey, the more that you and I get honest, the more we understand the reality of our own story, the more open that you'll be to understanding your unchurched neighbor, And the more we know about the people we're neighbors with, the more we'll understand them, and then the more we'll be able to to connect and make meaningful, meaningful relationships with them. And so I want to look at a story found in John chapter 4. It's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. It's John chapter 4. I got the event is on the YouVersion app. It's going to be on the screen here. But it's the story of the Samaritan woman, and we witness in this story the power of knowing the power of understanding and being fully known. And we'll highlight some of the things that are common and maybe you've seen before, but then we're going to look at this story in a different way. I want, I want us to look at this in a way that perhaps you've never, you've never experienced this story before, or maybe, maybe the power in this story will help us remember in our own lives. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So John's given us some commentary here. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, it was about noon. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. What really she was saying is, this vessel, Jews believe that they shouldn't use the same vessels as Samaritans. She'll say, this vessel will defile you, so how are you asking me for a drink? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from himself as did all his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. He knows her. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. 
The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will neither worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who speak to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. This is the word of the Lord. And so there's a lot, there's a lot that we could glean from this encounter that we find here in John's gospel account. There's a lot we could glean from John chapter 4 in this encounter with the Samaritan woman. However, uh, instead of a verse-by-verse exposition, which I love to do, going verse-by-verse, I want us to take a step back and look at this story from a different perspective than perhaps many have you have read or experienced it before. Because I believe it can give us new vision and new compassion on how we view and approach personal evangelism as the people of God following Jesus in the way. Now listen, when we read a biblical story, it's our most natural human tendency to imagine ourselves in place of the hero or the protagonist of the story, which in the Gospels, the biographies about Jesus' life, it's most often Jesus. It's natural for us to place ourselves in that part of the story. We put ourselves into the text, right? And I do want to note that if you're a disciple, if you're an apprentice, a follower of Jesus, then it's expected that your deepest desire would be to be like him. So that's a right desire. But the trouble with our tendency to put ourselves in that position in the text is that we often miss a perspective that's there given for our benefit, We often miss where we fit into the story. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament, David and Goliath. Whether you're familiar with church or not, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. And listen, there have been books uh, written on this. But listen, in the story, there's three perspectives, really. There's Israel, the people of God, who are cowering on the hill. They need a savior. They need someone to deliver them, or they're going to become the slaves of their enemies. There's the Philistines, the enemies, the people that are opposed to the name of the one true God. Uh, then there's, uh, there's David. Well, there's Goliath. There's the giant, the, the warrior who fights on the enemy's behalf, this giant that seems uh, just formidable. They, they, he cannot be taken down. And then there comes, there comes David into the story. And so often it's easy for us, and, and there's been books written like this, and there's some truth there that in, the, in God's power we can be like David and we can slay our Goliaths in our life. And there's some truth there. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not knocking that. But in the story, I want you to see that you and I are Israel. 
that you and I are Israel in our state. We, we, we are on the sidelines, and our enemies look great, and we need a hero to step in and save us. And in the context of the story, David comes in, and he saves the people of God in a most unlikely way. With a sling and a stone, he brings down their enemy. And just like in our lives, just like in our lives, we're on the sidelines. We're Israel. We're cowering in fear. We need a Savior to come and save us from our enemies, sin and death and the devil. And Jesus came and in the most unlikely way, through a cross, defeats death and sin and the devil. And Jesus is our greater David. And so in the text, you and I are not David. We're Israel. Jesus is David, and he rescues us from our enemies. So I just want you to see how easy it is for us to put ourselves in the text as the hero, as the protagonist. And maybe this will help you read God's word differently, to look at a different perspective. And so back to our story in John chapter 4. Here in our text in John 4, which may be very familiar to many of you and new to some of you, it's normal to view this text and see the context, and we see it, we don't even have to have commentary, of Jesus breaking cultural barriers and religious barriers with a Samaritan and a woman at that. And it does set an example for us, it does set an example for us to engage those who are supposed to be our enemies or unworthy, whoever wrongly thinks they can define that in our lives, but that we should even engage them with the gospel of Jesus. And all that's true, but I want you to see something different in the text today. I want you, I want you to see the text with new eyes. So let's look at the story again. In this very famous text of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, the woman's belief is turned by a critically important fact. Her belief is turned and her life is turned by a very important fact. And the fact is this, that Jesus knew her. He understood her and he knew her and in his grace extended to her the invitation to receive living water that could satisfy her continual thirsting. It was the first thing she announced as she went back into town. She doesn't go back and say, I've met the Jewish Messiah or the Son of God has arrived. What does she say when she goes back to the town? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now the townspeople probably knew a lot of what she had done or she wouldn't have been drawing water at noon. She had a repia so what are we getting at perhaps for the first time in her life she felt fully known yet fully loved for the first time in her life she was fully known and understood yet fully loved not judged not condemned not shamed but fully loved tim keller writes this in a book uh, about relationships about marriage actually but it fits it's, it's the gospel he says to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. If we were honest, that's our greatest fear, that someone would truly know us and reject us. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And so for the first time in her life, she has experienced being fully known, yet fully loved. Fully understood, and yet not rejected, not judged, not condemned. And her heart, her heart overflows naturally with a declaration that's evangelistic in nature. She runs back to the town, and her witness, this woman with a reputation, her witness and her candor, her frankness regarding her own life, so impressed 
the people that they came to see, she said, come and see. Just come and see this man. And they come to see Jesus for themselves. And so here's the reality of this story of of the Samaritan woman at the well. Here's what I want you to see. You are her. I am her. That's each of us in this story. We're not Jesus. That's our story. If we've experienced God's gracious gift of new life and salvation, then that's our story. The word of God says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what am I doing? We're talking about understanding, but I want you, I'm trying to get you to remember I'm trying to get your heart in the place where when you engage your neighbor that you have a heart to understand because you remember what it felt like to be understood and yet not rejected, to be known and yet fully loved and offered eternal life. But maybe some of us have just drifted into a state of spiritual amnesia. But you see, the good news about Jesus is the truth that this woman experienced and all of us in Christ have experienced. That we can be fully known by the God of the universe and yet truly loved because of his great grace. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And some of us need to remember that today. Some of us need to remember that today. Jesus has come to each of us, or perhaps he comes to you today, and he sits down, or he sat down, and the Spirit of God reveals all of the ugliness, the brokenness, and the thirsting after things that don't satisfy us, the sin in our lives. And in that moment, we are exposed, and we're fully known, and he understands our condition. And yet, and yet, Yet he has poured into our hearts rivers of living water. He's extended to us life more abundantly and overflowing so that we do not have to search for water and try to draw it out of broken cisterns that cannot hold water anyways. He's met us where we were and he meets you there even today. He fully knows you and yet he demonstrates true love towards you as he offers you new life despite what you've done or where you've been. I want us to remember that that's our story so that our heart can have the right posture to seek to understand our unchurched neighbor so that we don't give off this attitude of being one way but our doing projects us as judgmental or hypocritical or self-righteous and just a stinky self-centered friend with one goal in mind. I want us to remember that this is our story and we have received grace even though, even though we've been fully known, we have been truly loved. And this is the compassion, the love, the grace that we carry when we enter into relationship with an unchurched neighbor. Dean Fleming, uh, author, uh, teacher, writes this. I got it on the screen. It says, Jesus' love and restoring power intersect people at the point of their life circumstances. Amen? We've experienced that. Many of you have experienced that. It intersects us at the point of our life circumstances. So how can this be true in relation to the lives of our unchurched neighbors? By engaging them, when we engage them with a heart that seeks to understand, listening to their story without judging, by not pretending to have it all together when we really don't. 
And this is foundational. This is the foundation of loving people as people and not projects. This opens the door to serve them and one day tell them, yes, of what God did in your heart and life because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that makes some of us really nervous. This idea of evangelism makes some of us really nervous because we feel like we got to have this five-point gospel presentation. But when we remember that we're the woman at the well, when we remember that we've been understood, when we've been fully known and yet truly loved by the God of the universe, then the declaration of the good news becomes pretty easy. Our declaration becomes that of the woman who encounters Jesus at the well in the midst of her circumstances. And then we go to tell them, eventually we get there, after we've come into a position of understanding and listening, we can tell them, come and see, come and hear about a God who knows everything that I've ever done. And let me tell you, friend, I've messed up. Come hear about a God who knows everything I've ever done but still offered me new and abundant life now and forever. And so the relationship with your neighbor is not established with an end goal of getting your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate simply into a church building. That's not what it is. It's established with a heart of genuine love for your neighbor because your teacher and your savior first modeled this way in his life. And yes, there will come a time when you must tell and you must share the good news of God's love and grace in Christ. And we're going to get there in our series. And looking at the way of Jesus helps us when that time comes. Jesus had a masterful ability to tailor the message to the audience. And that speaks directly to us as his church today. Just one chapter earlier in John chapter 3, one chapter earlier, he's not speaking with a sinful woman. He's speaking with a teacher of the Jewish law named Nicodemus. And he uses the image of new birth to present the idea of the kingdom and new life to Nicodemus because this man knew the law. He knew how to keep the rules. He knew how to keep in line. But Jesus said, no, 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 you actually have to be born again. You need a new birth. Not that comes from the law, but that comes through the spirit. And so Jesus speaks to him in the place that he is. And here he meets a woman at a well who is parched and thirsty and he speaks to her about living water. Why does this Jesus do it this way? Because he understood them. And so we must resist the temptation and it will free us to reduce the gospel, the teaching and work of Jesus, to a one-size-fits-all formula. Let's resist that in our lives. To be good news, it must make sense to the people and speak in ways that fit their life situation. That's how Jesus shared it in his life. Story after story, parable, he, he introduced the kingdom of God in ways that people could hear it and understand it. And so many, many of times the way to get to that place is to take time to listen and understand our unchurched neighbors first. And listen, we don't have the same knowledge as Jesus, nor will we ever, but we can learn about those in our lives. We can take time to be compassionate and understand, to wonder and ask and lean in. You shouldn't make assumptions and you don't have to read someone's mind to understand them. It just starts with asking and listening. And listen, church family, there is great power in being in a conversation, and some of you have experienced this, in being in a conversation with someone and they know that you're working to understand them rather than only make a declaration to them. They know that you're actually working to understand and know them. 
And so as Haley and, and Ashley make their way back up, the bottom line for us today in this first part of this series is this. When it comes to your unchurched neighbors, we are to work to understand before working to be understood. That's the bottom line here. Working to understand before working to be understood. To remember, to remember what it was like uh, to be hidden in our condemnation and our shame and the guilt of our sin. But then to encounter Jesus, to encounter the God of the universe who says, I know you and I understand you and I see you, but I'm offering you new life because I love you. And if you experience the freedom of that, then our heart should naturally, naturally overflow to work to understand others before working to be understood. As the old saying goes, right? People don't care what, how much you know until they know how much you care. It rings true today, especially in the life of God's people, in your life, in my life. So we must simplify what it means to be a good neighbor and to build relationships with the people whom God has placed around us. The mantra of, of one of these families who authored one of the articles I read, he said this, and I love it. Uh, I, I love it. He says, we invite people into our lives, not into a location. Uh, that's good. We invite people into our lives, not a location. And I want to free some of you up today before we close, before we respond in worship. We're all wired different, and we're engaged in different spheres of influence. And some of you need to hear this today. Peter's call is not everyone's call. And bear with me. Jesus looked at Peter and James and John, and he said, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They were fishermen. He spoke into their context. But Peter's call is not everyone's call. So I'm encouraging you today, don't try to carry someone else's call in your life. Don't try to carry someone else's call. But while Peter's call is not everyone's call, we are all called to witness to the transforming grace of God. If you've experienced it in your life, by being the people that God has called us to be, by doing, by living out what we claim to believe, and then yes, by telling them, hey, come and see a God who knows everything about me, yet he offered me new life. Richard Foster wrote this. He said, we do not need elaborate plans or scholarly speeches. We need only love. Loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. I want to finish with this quote from Kerry Newoff. He said, don't pretend to be something or someone you're not. I find the more humility I add to my words, the smaller the gap is between who I am and who I say I am. When you admit your shortcomings, you build a bridge between yourself and others. Owning your sin is different than living in it. Confession is never an excuse for complacency. When was the last time you had someone who's not your skin color, not your political persuasion, and doesn't share your value system over for dinner? Or when was the last time you broke bread with an addict who's not in recovery? Often when Christians do pursue friendships with people far from God, it's more of a project than a friendship. But people aren't projects. People are people. People can smell it a mile away if you see them as a project and not a person. You want a simpler place than that to begin? Try this. Just like the person. As my friend Reggie Joyner says, people will never believe you love them if they feel you don't like them. God have mercy on me. So why is this worth talking about? 
Why are we going to have a series about this for four weeks? It's because we want to be obedient. We want to be about the business of our rabbi, our teacher, our savior, if we're his disciples. His heart was for the lost, and so ours must be as well. To seek and to save the lost, we must place ourselves in position for him to do that work through us. And that begins with a heart that seeks to understand, to know, just as you and I have been understood and fully known, yet truly loved. Would you stand with me this morning? Would you stand with me as we prepare to worship and close and pray? Would you stand with me to pray? Some of us today just need to ask God to soften our hearts. Some of us need to repent of some judgmental and hypocritical and selfish tendencies that we've had towards people who are outside the church, who are unchurched, who have a perception that too often Christians have brought on themselves. Right or wrong in your life, some of us need to just ask God to search our hearts so that he can give us a heart that truly seeks to understand and know, to listen and to care for those who are unchurched, those who are in our circles of influence. And then start there. Start with asking and listening. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you modeled this, that we don't have to look far, but within your text to see that you modeled this for us, God. Change our hearts today, God. Renew our minds towards our neighbor. If we believe that to seek and to save the lost was your mission, then God, give us a heart. Give us a passion, Lord, for those who are outside of relationship with you, who are far from you, God. Help us to see them as people the way that you see them so that by your grace, perhaps you'll give us a chance to tell them, to, hey, I know a God that knows everything I've done. He knows everything you've done, but yet he offers you new and abundant life even now. Jesus, help us to live like you as we remember the love that you've poured into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening today. Go ahead and subscribe to our channel for updates and new episodes. And if you have any questions about our church or ministries, go ahead and email us at info at org.